I'm Nikki, and here's a few things that are coming up here at Crossroads. The One Retreat is a great way for our students to encounter God and build lasting friendships. This weekend retreat will be in Cincinnati and will be staying at the Great Wolf Lodge and spending a day at Kings Island. They can expect to have a ton of time of worship and just experience their lives being changed. This retreat is October 21st through the 23rd and the price is $175 for the first 50 people. So be sure to register online at cccgo.com slash one retreat. Thursday, October 20th at 6 a.m., our men's ministry is having a big breakfast for all of our guys here at church. It's gonna be a great way for you to get to know some people you might not have met before and just check out what our men's fraternity does all throughout the year. It's gonna be a great breakfast, so please come hungry. Let us know you're coming by registering online at cccgo.com men. Here at Crossroads, we take a moment in every weekend service to take communion together. Communion is such a great way to pause and remember that sacrifice that Jesus made when he gave his life for us on the cross. In an effort to be a little more health conscious and to cut back on some spending costs of bread, starting this weekend, you'll see one tray pass down your row instead of two. Each tray will have a set of two cups. One cup will contain the bread and the other will contain the juice. This is how you'll see communion moving forward and one of our pastors will be here to explain that moment later in our service today. For more information on these events and the many others that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check out your bulletin or go online to cccgo.com. Whether we know it or not, just about all of us have a natural tendency to run away from God. We may choose to run from God because we fear what he may think about things we've done in our past. We may run towards things in which we place a higher importance or value more than our relationship with God. We may run down a path that has us go through a predefined set of motions or blindly follow a set of rules that we think will bring us closer to God, but that actually ends up being a substitute for a real relationship with him. In the book of Hosea, God uses the troubled relationship between a man and his wife to illustrate the fact that he is patiently pursuing us, no matter what we've done or how far we have run. God loves us regardless of how many times we've said to him, catch me if you can. Well, again, I want to welcome those of you who are new with us today. If you're a guest, uh, we are just so glad that you've carved some time out of your weekend to be here at Crossroads. Now, last weekend, we began this brand new series where we have been looking at how God runs after us. He pursues us no matter how far and fast that we have run from him. Now, the truth is that is probably a very different perspective or image of God that maybe you were taught to believe at a younger uh, age at some point in your past. And, and so last weekend, we saw that we all have this tendency to run from him. None of us are put together. We don't measure up. All of us are broken in some way. None of us really have this whole thing called life figured out. And so in this series, what we've been doing is walking through this book found in the front half of the Bible called Hosea, and we have been learning about God's pursuit of us. Now, I would be willing to bet that this book will challenge whatever preconceived image, notion, or belief that you have been holding on to about God. I mean, chances are you probably didn't learn this story in Sunday school as a kid growing up, all right? 
I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that it's your wedding day, all right? Now, this is the day that you have been looking forward to for a really long time, and, and you and your fiancé have been engaged, and you have had your rough patches, you fought, you've had your moments of frustration, and, and you've just had a lot of stress trying to plan every detail of the wedding and the reception. And, and if you're honest, most of the fights that you have when being engaged goes back to the guy not really caring enough about some of the details of the wedding, right? <laughs> well, through it all, you've made it, and you couldn't be more excited about marrying your best friend on this day. Well, say it's about two hours before the start of the wedding ceremony, and you're hanging out in a room at church with your close friends and family members, those who have made up your wedding party, when all of a sudden one of your close friends receives a text message from someone else. Now, the moment he or she receives this message, as they look down, you can tell almost instantly that something doesn't seem right, something is off. And so you ask your friend, what, what is wrong, what did you receive there? And at first they don't really respond. They just look at you with a blank stare, with a stale look. And, and then all of a sudden they hand the phone over to you. You look down on their screen and there is a picture of your fiance, the person that you're about to marry, kissing somebody in a hotel bar locally uh, the night before. I mean, at first you might think that this is some cruel joke that somebody's been playing on you. Maybe this photo was photoshopped in some way. But then after a little while, when you realize that this really happened, your denial then starts into questions. You ask yourself, can I really trust this person? I mean, who is this person that I thought I knew that I'm supposed to be marrying today? I mean, meanwhile, you have a really important decision to make in the next few moments. Will you go through with the wedding or will you call it off? Or better yet, will you give the impression that you're going to go through with the wedding, but then stand your fiancé there up on the altar, and when they get to the front of the church, you flash that picture up on the screen for everybody to see? <laughs> How many of you would do that one? Last one? Oh, come on. Be honest. All right. Can't lie in church. Now, I doubt that very few of us would decide to go through with the wedding on that day, Right? Why? Because you would be marrying somebody that you didn't know if you could trust. You thought you knew that person, but then in a moment you realize that maybe I didn't know him or her as well as I thought. Now what is just crazy about the story of Hosea is that God tells one of his messengers, a guy named Hosea, to go out and marry a prostitute by the name of Gomer. Now realize that on the day of their wedding, Hosea was well aware of what he was getting himself into. He realized before the, before the ceremony even started that his fiance was going to be reciting some vows to him that she had no intention of keeping. And even up until that point, she really hadn't been all that faithful to him. And, and so he was aware of this going into their marriage. And yet throughout this story, no matter how many times she ran around on him, no matter how many times she slept with other guys, and in spite of all the baggage and mess that she brought into this relationship, never once did Hosea serve her with divorce papers. And yet what's even crazier than this is that their marriage, their relationship serves as a mirror giving us a, an image of God's relationship with us and his desire to pursue us in the midst of our infidelity it's him. 
And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the book of Hosea. Uh, it's found right halfway in between your Bibles. If you have a Bible app, go ahead and jump there. Now, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it should be uh, right on that table as you walked in uh, a moment ago. Today, we're going to be in chapter 2 uh, of Hosea. All right. Now, as you're turning there, I want to just set up the context, set up the scene here for you uh, for just a moment. Uh, at a point in time, God had selected a group of people whom he would refer to as his chosen people. Sometimes we refer to them as the Jews, the Jewish people, or the Israelites, same people. We're talking about the same group, all right? And they had a very on-again, off-again, back-and-forth relationship with God. And so one moment, they're serving God faithfully. They are faithful to him. He is their one and only. But then it's like the next moment, they're out having a one-night stand with some type of idol, all right? And so they end up running from God. And, and so God would then pursue them. He would chase them and remind them that he is the one true God worthy of worship and praise. And so where we pick up today is in a moment of the Israelites' time where they had been running from God. They wanted nothing to do with him. And so God makes an effort to chase after them in the midst of their infidelity and unfaithfulness. And so I want to pick up uh, in chapter 2, verse 2 of Hosea. Here's what God says, all right? He says, rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. I don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Now, notice at the beginning of verse 2 how God says, rebuke your mother here twice. We see that word repeated. The word rebuke is actually a legal term that means to bring about some formal charges, all right? God's people here in this moment were guilty of unfaithfulness. Now, the most loving thing that God could have done here in this moment would have been to speak in such a way that would have kept his people from running from him any further. I mean, think about it like this. How much do you have to hate somebody in your life to not alert or warn them about destruction that may be on the near horizon? I mean, how much do you have to hate them to just kind of passively stand by and, and watch them wreck their lives with decision after decision? There was once a 19-year-old boy who was told by his father to go and, and put their family's boat in the lake for the summer. And before the boy left the house that day with five of his high school buddies, the dad gave him very detailed instructions about what to do with the boat and how to launch it in the water and, and what to make sure of, the, uh, of what was in place and, and this and that. And you see, the boat had just been summarized, which meant that the mechanic had prepared it to be in the water for the summer. And sometimes the mechanic doesn't always put all the pieces back together where it should be. And so that day, the boy and all of his high school buddies got down to the lake. They launched the boat successfully into the water. And they had a blast that afternoon, water skiing and just having a good time. Well, at the end of the day, this boy parked the family's boat right at the dock, right in front of their family's lake house, just as his dad had instructed him. Well, two weeks later, the dad then went down to the lake house to check on the boat to see if the boy had done exactly what he had done. And when the father arrived at the lake, at the dock itself, he was really surprised. I mean, he was shocked because the boat that the boy had put in the water two weeks before was sitting nicely on the bottom of the lake. Evidently, the boy forgot to check the drain plug, all right, when it was summarized, it was out. And so slowly over two weeks, it kept taking on more and more water. And eventually the boat just sunk to the bottom of the lake. And I have to tell you, 
that when my dad first called me up and he told me what I had done, I couldn't believe I'd been so stupid. I mean, that is a 100% true story. I mean, thank God for insurance, all right? Now, what's more disturbing about that story is that a few weeks later, after that happened, we had some neighbors walk over to our house, and just out of the blue, they asked us, hey, did you ever get your boat fixed? And before we could even respond to them, they said, you know, we noticed that something wasn't right about your boat, and uh, it just was kind of slowly sinking. And, and so what we did was we got some neighbors together that live here on the street. We pulled up our lawn chairs, sat right in your backyard, and watched your boat sink slowly one afternoon from the shoreline. Yeah. <laughs> Evidently, in the hills of Kentucky, that's what you call entertainment. All right? Do you know what a Kentuckian's famous last words are? Hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> Wasn't in the notes. Sorry. Uh, now, what would a good neighbor have done in that moment, looking at a boat that is sinking down to the bottom of the lake? They would have alerted at least somebody, right? I mean, we, they, at the very least, they would have called my parents, hey, down here at the lake house, your, your boat is sinking, you got to do something. But instead, they just passively stood by on the shoreline and, and watched it sink to the bottom. And, and you see, sometimes what may appear as a harsh confrontation, God looks at us, he realizes where our life is headed. And like the Israelites here, their lives were just taking on more and more water. It was sinking and so in love, he graciously confronted them about where, about where their life was ending. and Destruction was on the horizon. I want you to look at uh, what the Lord continues to say in verse 3. He says, otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day that she was born. I will make her like a desert and turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. Now, right here, God promised to expose the parts of the Israelites' lives that they didn't want anyone else to know about. Not a very comforting thing to be faced with. Now, God promised that he would deny them access to any kind of comfort until they realized that their false gods couldn't deliver what they had promised all along. It doesn't add up to us, but sometimes, sometimes God allows us to endure difficulty so that we can lean more completely upon him. And so in chapter two, at the beginning, we just have this image painted of a God who seems to be angry. It's, it's like God was willing to do whatever it took to keep these people from running further from him. And, and you might think, well, he, he's a control freak. I mean, couldn't he have just let them do what they wanted? But you see, then in verse 14, God transitioned his tone and posture from, from warning to anticipation. And so speaking directly to the people who had rejected him, he communicates some promises to them. Now, before we look at some of these promises in our text, I just want to ask you a very direct question before, before these promises are thrown up here on the monitor. I mean, what would change for you if you actually believe that these promises could be true for you in your life. Look at verse 14. Here's what God continues to say. He says, therefore, I'm going to allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. All right. Now, 
Check out what, what is being said here. Some scholars describe the, these verses as God's way of courting the Jews again. In spite of all her sin and idolatry, the Israelite people had been promised by God that he was going to pursue them by winning over their hearts. And, and so when it comes to chasing us down, here's the first promise that God gives every one of us. It goes like this, that I will fight for you no matter what. I will fight for you no matter what. Allure means to, to draw in. God then said that he was going to gently lead his people back into the wilderness where they could get away from all the distractions of their culture. Now, for the Jews to really hear from the Lord, they needed to be put into an environment where they could at least hear his voice and be sensitive to his leading. Now, the wilderness or the desert is where God took his people after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt generations before, realized that this was a season of difficulty and frustration for a lot of the Jews. Now, to give you an idea of how frustrating and stressful and how much of a struggle that this probably was for them, the Jews lived out of a tent wandering from place to place for about 40 years. I mean, can you imagine literally camping for four decades? <laughs> I mean, by show of hands, anybody here actually like to camp? All right, four of us, all right? Uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan hates camping. He, he says this, he said, my wife, my wife says that camping is a tradition in her family. Yeah, it was a tradition until we invented the house. He then says, I mean, my parents never took me camping as a kid, and do you know why? Because they loved me. <laughs> now, people always criticize the Israelites for complaining during this season of their life, but I got to tell you, by after about day five of camping in the desert, I probably would have wanted to go back to slavery as well. I mean, it was a miserable time for them. And yet, as backwards as this sounds, the wilderness was a season of their life where they could look back and realize that God had been proven, had proven himself to be trustworthy time and time again. You see, actually, the, the Jews looked back on this season of their heritage with fond memories, realizing that, that God was always fighting for them, even when their circumstances didn't seem to reveal that. I want you to notice again in verse 14 how, how God says that. He is going to take the Israelite people into the wilderness so that what? He can speak tenderly to them. Now that word speak in the Hebrew describes a conversation that a loving husband might have with his beloved wife. And, and so God basically says, I'm going to remind you of all that I've done for you. I'm going to remind you of how much I love you. Now I want you to notice what God doesn't say here. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you into the desert and tell you how disappointed I am in all that you've done. I mean, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take my people into the wilderness to, to just let them have it for all their sin and idolatry. And yet, sadly, a lot of us walk in here today, and that is the impression, that is the image that we have of God, that somehow, for, for some decision that we've made in the past, he is disappointed in us. And, and so the reason why maybe you've been running from him for so long is because you want to keep from him letting you have it for the mess that you've created. Can I tell you something that's just changed my life this past year? God's not disappointed in you. You see, by definition, disappointment means to be surprised by something, right? And I want you to know that, that God is not shocked or surprised by our sin because the Bible tells us that Jesus, he actually became our sin for us so that what? We might become the righteousness of God. 
The movie, uh, The Last Emperor, talks about how, um, describes the life of, of the last emperor that, that China ever had. It was a young boy who was literally born into wealth and opulent luxury. And, and even as a young child, he had thousands of servants around him at every given moment throughout the day. And, and it was all about him. And, and so in one scene, if you've seen this movie before, uh, his brother comes to him and he says, hey, what happens when you do something wrong? And the young emperor, the young child responds to his brother and he says, well, when I do something wrong, somebody else is punished. And so just at that time, he takes a jar and he breaks it right then and there. And the next thing you see is one of his servants, one of the guys who, who had revolved his life around this young child, had been beaten with a rod time and time again with, with a large stick. And again, some of us, that's our impression of God, that he is some ruthless dictator who just wants to get back at us for all the wrong that we've done. And yet realize that 2,000 years ago, God broke that pattern. Because you see, we were the ones who did wrong. And yet it was the king who was punished. And the Bible tells us that he became our sin even when we were his enemies so that we may have peace with God even in the midst of us being in hostility towards him. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that, that there is nothing God isn't willing to do to fight for us. Nothing can get between us and him. The second promise that God makes in his pursuit of us goes like this. I will replace what you've lost. I'll replace what you've lost. Now, let's just get this out here on the table. It's weird. It's awkward. It's strange that God told one of his messengers to marry a prostitute, right? I mean, what in the world is that all about? I've wondered that a lot lately as I've studied this book, but here's what I realized this past week, that there is no other act that we can do with our physical bodies that binds us more closely or more completely to another person whom we're having sexual intercourse with. It's an act that literally binds us to that individual. Therefore, this tells us that when we run from God, we are surrendering really personal, deep parts of our life to things that ultimately can't satisfy and so like his reaction to the Israelites, God's response is jealousy. Now, God's jealousy is not like the crazy obsession that you've experienced with your crazy ex-husband who now has a restraining order, all right? You see, human jealousy is rooted in selfishness. Human jealousy is based out of insecurity. But God's jealousy for us is more about anger for us rather than anger towards us. And that makes all the difference in the world, Right? Sin is our effort to replace something that we've lost with the reality that it's something that, that only the Lord can provide. I want you to look at what God promised in verse 15 again as we continue. He says, there I will give her back her vineyards. <clears throat> now right here, God uh, promised to return something that he said he was going to take away if the Jews didn't stop running from him. And, and in the Bible, understand that wine is portrayed as a gift from God that reveals his goodness. It's also symbolic throughout the scriptures for joy and gladness, all right? Wine was a central element in ancient covenant ceremonies. Now, a covenant ceremony is a formal agreement that would bind two different parties together. And we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But several generations before, God made this covenant with the Jewish with, with the Jews' ancestors, a guy by the name of Abraham. He told Abraham that his descendants, his people, people that would be his offspring, would be blessed, that God would never leave them, that, that, he, was all, that he would always be with them. 
And so earlier in verse 9 of Hosea chapter 2, God actually threatened to remove every ounce of grain, wool, linen, and wine from the Israelites. Why? So that it would be undeniably obvious to the Jews that they had chosen to leave the covenant between them and the Lord. But it's as if God is saying here, hey, look, it doesn't have to end this way. You don't have to go this direction that's ultimately going to end in emptiness. You see, by replacing the vineyards with new ones, God promised to restore their joy again. God was saying, only I can give you back your innocence. Only I can purify your hearts again. Only I can heal your wounds and your brokenness that that has been a result of giving yourself, prostituting yourself to all these other idols. And check out what God continues to promise here in, in verse 15. He says, and I will make the Valley of Acre, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Now, the Valley of Acre was an infamous site for the Jewish people that represented loss. Hundreds of years before, a soldier in the Israelite army named Achan had disobeyed a direct order that God had given the Israelite army before heading into battle and seizing a city. Now, because of one man's disobedience that, that day, God then allowed the Jewish army to be defeated in the very next battle. The Jews were literally run out of this city that they were trying to overtake, And the book of Joshua tells us that 36 men, 36 Israelite soldiers were killed that day. And so the Valley of Acre was a stain of defeat that defined the Israelites for a really long time. And so perhaps you can understand a little more clearly why mentioning that the Valley of Acre was going to become a door of hope would have caused the Jewish people to be really skeptical and confused at first glance. But you see, God... He was talking about more than just erasing a moment in their history that the Jews wanted to overlook. He was promising something greater. You see, this was God's way of telling the Jews that he is in control and he is sovereign over all things. The Lord alone has the power and authority to take something that has caused generational shame and turn it into a symbol of victory. Now, if you think about it, The reason a lot of us run from God probably goes back to the fact that we try to replace, fix, or cover over something that has been missing in our life because of maybe some mistake that we made or some uh, hurt that was enforced upon us. And so what we try to do is we try to clean it up, we try to fix it, we try to be the solution, right? And yet what we don't realize sometimes in the moment is that that's our way of running from God. Maybe for you, you grew up in a home where Nobody ever built you up. You were constantly told by your mom and dad that you were a mistake and that you just weren't good enough. And why couldn't you be more like fill in the blank? And so for you in your life, you've always had this void of love and value. And so as you've grown up, you got really good at your career. And so you started getting addicted to the approval that your career would give you. Because you're really good at it, people would praise you. And so all of a sudden, you have allowed your work or whatever it is that you do to define who you are. You are placing your weight upon what you produce in the office or Or maybe you jump from relationship to relationship because you just love people telling you how much love, how how loved you are and how much you're cared for. And so again, could it be our effort to replace something that's been lost that only God can give? Maybe you recently celebrated a birthday that was a reminder to you that you're kind of halfway done with this life and 
And so you've been doing a lot of reflecting lately. You look back on maybe the first half of your life and you've realized that you've always done what other people around you wanted to do. And you've kind of lost out on this whole freedom thing. That's been a void in your life, you feel like. Whether it's been your spouse or your kids, you have always revolved your life around making a decision to please someone else. And so as you've been reflecting, you've thought, well, hey, in this next chapter of my life, I'm going to make some changes. Now, you maybe haven't said it out loud, but one of the changes that you're thinking about making is leaving a stale, boring marriage because freedom's calling. And it could be that you have a short list of people who could give you what your spouse hasn't been giving you for years or maybe even decades. And so could it be that we are trying to replace something that's been lost? Now, let me be really straight with you for a minute. This past Monday night, I was talking with my wife, Savannah, in our kitchen, and we were talking a little bit about Hosea and Gomer in this story, and, and it was probably the first time I've ever verbalized it, and I gotta tell you, it was really freeing when I said it, but I, but I said to Savannah, I said, and this is gonna sound really backwards when I first tell you, but just hang with me. I said, you know, I think for a majority of my life, I have always believed that grace and forgiveness is for other people, but it's not really for me. Now, again, that sounds really weird coming from a pastor, a professional grace giver, grace teacher, and yet here's why. I know myself too well. I know what I'm capable of. I know my thoughts. I know my motives at different times. And so this whole grace and forgiveness thing, it seems a little bit too good to be true. And isn't that some of our stories? And yet I wonder if some of us would stop running from God if we really knew and believed and internalized that God is not in love with a better version of us. God not only loves us, but he likes us as well. And, and so I am experiencing a new level of freedom that I haven't felt in a long time because I'm realizing that me and God, we've always been good. Since I've been in a relationship with Jesus, I've been free, I've been saved, I'm going to heaven. But do you know what I battle with to this day? Is letting myself off the mat. Forgiving myself. And again, that's some of our stories. Look at verse 16 here. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Now, this was God promising the Israelites that nothing they had done in their past uh, made them undeserving or disqualified them from God pursuing them. And so this leads us to the last promise that God gives us when chasing us down. It goes like this. And this may be the reason why you came today. I'll free you from your past. I will free you from your past. There is nothing that makes us more or less deserving of this offer. And that's really offensive for some of us. In verse 18, God promised to make a new covenant with his people that would bring about the full restoration of the entire created universe. Now, this new deal between God and humanity will eventually lead us back to how things were originally meant to be at the beginning, from the beginning of time. Now, hundreds of years after God said this to the Israelites during Hosea's day, he followed through with this new covenant and provided Jesus to be the sacrifice that reconciled us, humanity, back to him. 
Now, in the ancient world, and this is really important to understand, so pay attention to this. In the ancient world, whenever a covenant, all right, was established between two different parties, some kind of animal was sacrificed during the ceremony to remind everybody involved of the seriousness of the deal that was taking place. And so for the individual who maybe wronged the other person, the other party, the other tribe, or the other nation in that covenant, it was their responsibility to provide the sacrifice, And so what they would do is they would then cut the animal into two different pieces and the person who had wronged the other person would be the first to walk through the carcass, all right, signifying that, hey, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, if I for some reason leave this agreement, then may this happen to me. May my body end up like this animal carcass here. And so when God established a covenant between us and him, He did the complete opposite. He pulled a big surprise. We wronged him, therefore we should be the ones bringing the sacrifice to the covenant. But God was so aware of our sin that the only way for the deal to really work was for him to be the sacrifice. If you want a different picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross, there's actually a later moment in Hosea and Gomer's marriage that I think gives us a different vantage point of what Jesus did for us. You see, all throughout their marriage, Hosea had remained faithful to Gomer in spite of all her one-night stands and different men that she had slept with. And Hosea always left the door unlocked. He always left the light on. And and there were moments where Hosea had every right to just leave her. And, And yet, rock bottom didn't happen until she went from having a bunch of one night stands to then selling herself to be a sex slave. Now, when that happened, again, You might think that Hosea was going to just throw in the towel. He was giving up on her. In fact, the law actually gave Hosea permission to have her executed, to have her stoned for all of her unfaithfulness because of what she had done. And yet what ends up happening is the complete opposite. When Hosea learns that his wife had sold herself to be a sex slave, he walked out of his house, he walked down the street into the red light district there in their city, More than likely, he walked into a room where a bunch of women were standing up on platforms naked. And and beside their bodies was a price that you could pay as a man to have a few moments of pleasure with these different women. But Hosea, he wasn't there for the sex that day. No, he was on a mission to find and win back his wife. And so check out what we see happening in Hosea chapter 3, verse 2. This is what Hosea said he did. So I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Now don't miss what happened here. Hosea simply reclaimed what had been his from the beginning. There wasn't a price too high for him to bring back home what had been lost. Now the Bible tells us that when you and I entered this world that we were slaves to sin, that we're slaves to darkness. But you see, it didn't start out that way. No, we were created to be gods from the beginning. That's why we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that we're made in his image. But then what ended up happening is we wanted to do our own thing. We wanted to run and be our own god. And that was kind of a a behavioral pattern that was passed down from our mom and dad from the beginning. Until all of a sudden, next thing we know, we are enslaved to our sin. We are enslaved to the consequences of sin. And though we were the ones who had run from home, Jesus was sent to the cross to purchase us and reclaim what was rightfully his. 
And I just think maybe that's why Jesus just loved to tell people stories about God's pursuit of us. One such story is found in Luke chapter 15. It's called the parable of the prodigal sons. Author Philip Yancey rewrote that story to, to fit our modern context. And so I just wanna end today by reading this story to you. He says this, there was once a daughter who grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, disgusted with her old fashioned parents who would overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts, she runs away. Now she ends up in Detroit where she meets a man who drives the biggest car that she's ever seen. That man with the big car, she refers to him as boss. And she recognized, and he recognizes that since she's underage, men would pay a high premium for her. And so she goes to work for him. Things are good for a little while, life is good, but then she ends up getting sick for a few days and it amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean. He turns on her. And so before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. On occasion, she'd find somebody willing to pay sex, pay for sex, but you see the money that she did end up earning through that would just go towards her drug habit. Well, one night, she was sleeping on the metal grates of the city and she began to feel like less of a woman of the world and more like a little girl again. And so she begins to whimper, God, why did I leave? And my dog back home eats better than I do now. And she knows that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight calls home and each time she gets the answering machine. And so finally she decides to leave a message. Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I might catch a bus up your way and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. And if you're not there, I get it. I'll understand. So during the seven hour bus ride, she's just preparing this speech for her father. And when the bus comes to a stop in the Traverse City Station, driver announces that it's going to be a 15 minute stop and so she thinks to herself 15 minutes to decide the rest of my life 15 minutes to decide my future which road will I take so she walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect that day but not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees there in the bus terminal some small town in Michigan stands a group of about 40 brothers and sisters, various family members and friends. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that simply reads, welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad and she stares out through tears quivering in her eyes and she begins her memorized speech but then her dad interrupts her and he says hush child we've got no time for that time for apologies we'll be late a big party is waiting for you at home let me just ask you something as we, as we end today if you knew that's how you'd be received if you decided to stop running from your heavenly father. Don't you think you'd decide to stop? I mean, don't you think that 
your perception could be shattered in a moment of this God who's been chasing after you and you realize that he's not out to get you, he's been fighting for you and, and he just longs to welcome you home with open arms. Whatever speech you may have prepared for him, he's just gonna tell you, hush. And so what we're gonna do now, I've asked my buddy Caleb to come out and play a song that we introduced last week called Death Was Arrested. And the song talks about how we too, at one point in our life, were enslaved in this world, yet it was Jesus who entered this dark and broken world who broke those chains of slavery. And it happened because he went to the cross in our place. He absorbed all the consequences that we deserve because of our idolatry, the sin in our life. And, and three days later, he walked out of the tomb proving that he really was who he said he was, God in the form of man. And so as this song is sung, I wonder if there is a part of your life where maybe you've been running from God. So what does that look like for you? What, what does this response look like for you? What do you need to do this week in spite of that? There are others of us in here who have just never stopped running and you've never really accepted the offer to come back home from this God that you love. I wonder if today is the day that that changes and, and you decide to take your next step with Jesus. I want you to think about that as the song is played and, and not leave here today without making that decision. Now, next week, we're gonna pick up in Hosea chapters eight and nine. We're gonna really learn and see what this party looks like the moment we do decide to come back home when God chases and pursues us. And so go ahead and read ahead, but I want you to come back next week wherever you are and maybe bring somebody with you. And, uh, and, and we're gonna continue this journey together, all right? Let's all stand up. We're gonna sing this one song uh, and then we'll be out of here. Let me pray. God, I know that many of us in here, we, we hear that story of the girl running away from her home and wanting to live the life that she wanted only to realize that it was empty, lonely, and really it hurt her. God, that's our story. And I know that's my story. And yet, God, would you just remind us over and over again that you are patient, that you are good, and you just long for us to come home. Whatever speech we have rehearsed, just want us to stop and hush and, and contemplate the love that you have for us. And so we thank you that death was arrested, that we don't have to worry about the consequences of our sin, all because of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. So we ask that your grace would wash over us now in this moment. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.